SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chen. I've joined you. What's your favorite season? Summer. Is the it? Hot one, the one that California is all the time. <laughs> Just as much hot as it can be. I'm yeah. sorry. Hot and dry. What's your tagline? All them canned goods. Oh, all of them. That's that's the way to go right now. <laughs> Sam Schultz is here as well. What's the best grid pattern for planting plants in Animal Crossing New Horizons? <laughs> oh, well, you know what, Sari? Just uh, forwarded me a very interesting link. Five by five. <laughs> it's more complicated than that. I won't get into it, but. Okay. And what's your tagline? Well, it was going to be five by five flowers. Grid. <laughs> you kind of ruined it for me. Oh, sorry. Sari Riley is here as well. Sari, who is the Tiger King? Oh, I don't Whoa. know. He's like a man with a bleach blonde hair and mustache. I yeah. have avoided watching the Tiger King. So it's probably I, for the best. Yeah. Anything that I know about him is just myth and legend. And it seems like the show is so wild <laughs> that you could tell me anything and I'd be like, sure, that happened. <laughs> like a man yeah. played a kazoo and rode a 
a tiger around. Yeah. And I'd be like, yes, that's the premise of the Tiger King. Sarah, what's your tagline? Marshmallow surprise. And I'm Hank Green, and my tagline is 10,000 wipes. Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, and we're also keeping score and awarding Sam bucks from week to week. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but we're not great at that. So if you go on a tangent and the rest of the team deems that tangent unworthy, we'll force you to give up one of your Sam bucks. So tangent with care. Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sari. Flashing lights, whirring motors, two legs made of steel, an unfathomable head with sensors concealed. What powerful feats this metal beast might complete. Oh, it just did a backflip. That's freaking sweet. (laughs) We imagine our bodies, our movements, our thoughts wrapped up in circuitry and made into mascots. But that concept, dear humans, is inherently fraught because robots are not exactly what we were taught. Snake-like tubes or big welding arms, watering farms or sounding alarms, little vacuums that clean while doing no harm. Even soft robotic prosthetics have their own charm. Whether a machine is uncanny or a chunky space probe, the size of an elephant or a tiny microbe, one thing rings true in every scientist's heart, we'll never stop programming robots to fart. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the farting robot? I didn't know about this either. There is a thing called the, um, the robot. It is an interactive farting figurine by Wowie. It's available at GameStop and Walmart. This is really interesting because I also found a robot, same mm. name, but it's used by Ford to test out car seats. And so it like okay. sits like a human mm-hmm. male would in a car seat and it's like uh-huh. sweaty and Ooh. just is like a butt that sits on car seats. Does uh, it communicate so. its own comfort to to you? No, I think it like is to simulate wear and tear on the car seat oh, over years okay. because people okay, are trading so. in their cars for new cars less often. Right. It's about the impact on the seat, not a, not the impact on the butt. Yes. I'm willing to take that job and sit <laughs> on a seat a hundred thousand times. Yeah, this this is why they gave that job to a robot, Stefan. They can't afford you. Uh, Sari, what is a butt? I mean, what is a robot? <laughs> well... A robot like a butt has an impact on the physical world around us. And so uh-huh. like a computer program that stays contained within a machine oh, and, and okay. does calculations, that's not a robot. But okay. if it can interact with the physical world, I think What that's about like a CD player then? Because it like spins a CD. I guess that's oh. a kind of a robot. Yeah, I guess kind of. It seems like scientists don't have a distinct definition of a robot. Um, Mm -hmm. The Robot Institute of America says it's a reprogrammable, (laughs) multifunctional manipulator designed to move material parts, tools, or specialized devices through various programmed motions for the performance of a variety of tasks. So, like, Mm. CD player fits into that, maybe. Yeah. Well, what's the difference between a robot and a machine? I think robot starts to get at like we've been talking about doing tasks so like Mm -hmm. um, a machine is like a toaster Mm -hmm. that you have to manipulate yourself so you like you have to be the human finger to push down the toaster button but a robot toaster would like grab the bread for you and stick it in and Mm -hmm. then go and then pop it back up and you would have to do nothing like it would replace you so you wouldn't be necessary in the toast making process anymore Uh, okay yeah i feel like we sort of had the idea of what a robot was before we had robots. So it's like, well, a robot is a, is a machine that does human things and looks human and acts human, but like can 
can do more than a human can, physically at least. Like making And then toast. we were like, yeah. And then we were like, but actually we're going to have real robots, but they're not going to fulfill a lot of those categories because most robots do not look anything like people um, because their goal isn't to replace people. It is to uh, do an action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is just the one part of a person that is most useful to it, <laughs> like an arm. <laughs> Yeah, so all the science fiction robots that we see are like very humanoid, uh, usually programmed with some sort of artificial intelligence um, so that they can make decisions about a wide range of things. But that technology is very, very far off and doesn't exist. But a lot of our robots are just like, I've programmed this thing to sit on car seats. I mean, you're the, the Robot Institute of America or whatever the organization was said it was a programmable thing, which was interesting to me because a lot of what we think of now is like robots that kind of program themselves. And in the mm-hmm. same way, we can make decisions that can use sort of like simple artificial intelligence to figure out its own decision making or its own object identification. So it in some way is doing its own programming. So it's almost like if we have that kind of artificial intelligence or even like a generalized artificial intelligence, it stops being a robot at that point and becomes something else. Sari, what is the etymology of the word robot? Because I know it's interesting, but I've forgotten. (laughs) Um, So the word robot comes from a Slavic language, I think Czech or whatever they were speaking in the early 1900s, uh, called robota. Uh, or mm-hmm. which means forced labor. And it was coined oh, in a play yeah. called Rossum's Universal Robots by a playwright called Carl Chopek. And it was just about mechanical men that are, are built to work in factory assembly lines and that rebel against Ooh. their human masters, which is like classic, Robots are always doing that. Yeah, robot yeah. uprising story before robots were a trope. Yeah, I mean, it was, yes, a trope has to start somewhere. And then Isaac Asimov used it and the word robotics in a short story. Mm. And he was a little bit more optimistic about how robots would like help out humans instead of be part of an uprising. And he was the one who came up with like the laws of robotics that robots won't harm humans and things like that. Yeah, the, the great thing about the laws of robotics are that they re- really require a huge amount of understanding on the part of the robot, which mm-hmm. we are nowhere near. <laughs> it's like, how do you know when you've harmed a human? Seems very obvious to me. I know when I'm harming a human, but boy... A robot could downright destroy you and have no idea it did it. Now it's time for... One of our panelists has prepared three science facts for our education and enjoyment, but only one of those facts is real, and the rest of us have to figure out, either by deduction or a wild guess, which is the true fact. If we get it right, we get a sandbuck. If we're tricked, then Stefan will get the sandbuck. Stefan, what are your three facts? Okay, these are three facts relating to... Water-based robotics. Oh. Uh, So fact number one. A UK-based hobby roboticist created a bunch of robotic versions of different swimming dinosaurs so that he could race them. (laughs) 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 Some researchers who heard about this got interested and uh, were particularly interested in his plesiosaur robot because the plesiosaur is a little bit unique amongst animals because it has four identical flippers. And so there's been some mystery about how how it moves. And so by studying his robot, they figured out how plesiosaurs move their flippers in relation to one another. That's fact number one. Number two, the modern conditions around the Great Barrier Reef have led to a population explosion in giant 
reef-eating sea stars, which has led to the development of a fleet of autonomous robots that can patrol the reefs looking for these sea stars and delivering lethal injections of bile salts to kill them. What salts? Bile salts. Bile, like yes. the stuff that your liver... Ma- or uh, Gallbladder. Gallbladder. Yeah. <laughs> or fact number three. One company is taking lifeboats to the next level by turning them into autonomous firefighting watercraft that once deployed can automatically navigate to humans that are stranded in water, as well as fire water cannons at flames that it spots on the vessel. So we've got fact number one. Uh, a hobby roboticist uh, decided to race some swimming dinosaurs and this taught us potentially how real plesiosaurs swam. Number two, there are some bad sea stars on the Great Barrier Reef, and that's led to the development of a fleet of autonomous robots that can look for and inject lethally the sea stars with bile salts. Or three, a company that is taking lifeboats to the next level by turning them into autonomous firefighting watercraft that can automatically navigate to humans stranded in the water and shoot fi- water cannons at the flames. Not fire cannons. Vessel. That would not be helpful. Shoot fire <laughs> cannons. I feel like I have heard about um, people making, sw- like like racing robots for fun and also for science. So this one has credibility. This first one has credibility for me. That like it, one of the ways, and I have also heard about lots of like swimming robots and how we're gonna figure that out. Hmm. Um, but I really like the idea that like somebody was just having a fun. <laughs> and then they were like, actually, can you send us your video? Because we're a little bit confused about how plesiosaurs work. Yeah, I could totally imagine a scientist nerd like looking on a shelf and being like, oh, I have these little these dinosaurs. Wonder if I can make a move and then doing that because that yeah. seems like what I would do if I was bored and had electrical <laughs> yeah. engineering skills. Yeah. Like, I don't think that I could do it, but I could imagine how someone might make a robotic plesiosaur fairly easily. They, like, they're the ones with like the paddly kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they got like a, they got paddle paddle fins and they got a long tail and a long neck. Sounds like the plot of like a Mega Man game or something to me. Doesn't sound real. The sea star one sounds too sad and also a little bit too specific. Are there giant reef eating sea stars? Is that a thing? I I have no idea. I know that sea stars eat all kinds of stuff, but I do not know about the sea star situation on the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, and I don't know if sea stars would have any need for eating like bleached coral or if they were eating whatever is alive. I'm sure they'd be eating the living stuff. Yeah, they'd be whatever's left. Got it. Yeah. yeah, so I guess I can see a case to protect whatever's left then if they were these giants. Do you know, Stefan, if these sea stars be- belong there? Are they invasive? How'd they get there? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think they okay. do belong there. So let's ask more specific questions about <laughs> other things then. <laughs> I think I talked about some kind of algorithm that can take a census of what fish live in a reef. So maybe it's mm. some kind of adaptation sort of that idea. And then, I mean, an autonomous lifeboat that can rescue people and shoot water. Like, that feels feels real because like if it's not being done just upon hearing it I'm like that's not a thing I should found an autonomous lifeboat company uh, machine learning could easily know what fire looks like that's very easy <laughs> and one of the great things about autonomous boating like there's just less stuff to run into in the ocean <laughs> yeah uh, on roads like it's very easy to like leave the road and that's a big problem on the ocean it's very hard to leave <laughs> 
the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who's going to guess first? I'm going to guess dinosaurs just because I think it's fun. All right. It is fun. Sam, hit me. <sighs> I might go with dinosaurs too because I think boat seems slightly too boring to be the right answer to me. Mm-hmm. That's true. It is a little bit boring. And I'm going to go with starfish because I know that that is the correct answer oh. because I've read about this. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hank is correct. It's the starfish. Uh, so there's apparently there's the three major threats to the Great Barrier Reef are climate change, pollution, and these sea stars. Yeah, um, they're nasty. Yeah, so they're called the Crown of Thorns starfish, and they're one of one of the largest sea stars, and they're about a foot wide, um, and they're covered in these venomous spines. Um, and yeah. over the past decade or so, their populations have boomed a lot because all the agricultural runoff going into that area causes these algal blooms, and the sea star larvae are eating that algae, so they are having a grand old time over there. And we also, they had some natural predators, but we ended up overfishing those predators, so it doesn't have any, like, checks to its population. Except robots. Except robots. (laughs) So they do eat the corals. um, Once they reach, like, maturity, they eat the fast-growing corals, I guess, which is good if you have a little bit of that, because it makes some room for the slow-growing corals to Mm -hmm. establish themselves. But it's I guess it's estimated that these sea stars are responsible for about 40% of the overall coral loss that we've seen. So Uh, it's a pretty big deal. Mr. Matthew Babadin, who's a professor at Queensland University of Technology, was all the way back in 2005 starting to develop these systems. And they had like sort of rudimentary vision system that could recognize the sea stars like two thirds of the time. But at that time, they didn't have a good way to kill them. They had like some kind of lethal injection, but you had to inject all of the 20 arms and so it was like really <laughs> difficult to do yeah. reliably but in 20 20- and this is something that like people would do like divers would yeah. go down stab 20 <laughs> different legs of a starfish and then move on to the next one got one and it's venomous too right so they were trying mm. not to get stabbed back yeah they, they have these stabbing. like long long stabby poles <laughs> Uh, But by 2014, we had found this bile salt injection thing that uh, has a 100% mortality and you only have to poke it one time. Uh, And then by that point, his uh, vision system was capable of identifying the sea stars over 99% of the time. They went through a couple iterations, I think, but they ended up with what they're calling the Ranger Bot. When it's about a meter long, it's got a bunch of propellers so that it's really maneuverable. And I guess the battery lasts about eight hours and it can go at night, it can go during the day. If there's a storm out, it can go anytime. And it's super (laughs) easy to control. I guess they did a lot of user testing to make sure that it was user friendly. So, you know people who are trying to save the reefs can go out and and plot courses for these robots and control them. Mm. And as a bonus, it has a bunch of like sensors on it so it can monitor the reef health while it's out there looking for these sea stars and killing them. Uh, And last I had read, there were about, I think there were five of them that were operational, um, but they're not yet widely available to different like reef management Mm -hmm. teams. Um, but the idea is to have a bunch of these like fleets just all over the reef. That's um, cool. Next up, we're going to take a break and then it'll be time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? 
And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as (laughs) the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the 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 part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, <laughs> yeah. Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know, I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my basement of my own home that I was renting. Downstairs of. If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Welcome, everybody. Sam Buck totals. Sari has one. I have one. Stefan has two. And Sam has none. Objection. Sorry, I put you in the end Objection. there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly why I did it in that order. <laughs> but now it's your chance, Sam, because it's time for the fact off, where two panelists have brought science facts in, a, in an attempt to blow everyone else's minds. The presentees each have a Sam Buck to award to the fact that they like the most. And we will decide who goes first. With this trivia question, as Sari said, the word robot first appeared in Czech playwright Carol Capek's play, Rossum's Universal Robots. 
In what year did this play premiere? Oh, no. I'm going to say 1917. Ooh. I'm going to say 1904. Oh, okay. I'll Hank say. Hank wins. Oh, oh no. ah! uh, It was 1921. Oh, oh nice. Okay. Oh. We were pretty close. I want to go first. Um, so. Once upon a time in the old days, rich people had people put their clothes on for them. But that is still something that happens for some people who need help getting their their garments on and off. And uh, there's plenty of reasons why. Age, injury, other kinds of limitations. So scientists at the Georgia Institute of Technology have gotten a robot to start to figure out how to dress a person. So they used a pre-built research robot. This is a thing that already existed called the PR2. And it can be programmed to do things like fold towels or grab drinks for people from the fridge. They wanted to learn how to dress a person, which means you have to let it fail and make mistakes. Mm. But robots making mistakes with a real human body would be dangerous because as we discussed earlier, robots do not know when they are killing you. So they had a robot study 11,000 simulations of a robot putting a hospital gown onto a human arm. And it had the uh, robot analyze the kinds of forces it can apply and the motions it can make and how those forces and motions affect the person who is getting dressed. In some of those simulations, they intentionally had it go very wrong. So like the gown would catch on the hand or the thumb or the elbow and to deal with it, the simulated robot would then apply a dangerous level of force to the arm <laughs> <laughs> and those were given to it as intentional failure states. So it would know this is bad. This simulation went very wrong. Never, ever do this. <laughs> so it went through 11,000 of these simulations and it got through them in one day because it's a r computer and it can do that. And then it moved on after that day to dressing people. And it was able to do that, by which I mean it was able to put one sleeve on one arm of one person uh, in about 10 seconds, which is like, you know, maybe not as fast as I would do it, but but plenty good. Importantly here, it is using touch so it, it can feel how things feel on its fingertips to figure out what the person getting dressed might be feeling. And also it's using its sight. So it's it's feeling and watching and using all of that information at the same time. And then from all of those movements and all the simulations and all the data it's getting, it can sort of pick the best motion for getting the the arm into the sleeve, which so far so good. Uh, as of 2018, it was able to put the surgical gown on the arm of a person. Getting a person fully dressed will take more work, but <laughs> <laughs> we're on our way. Yeah, it's That's worth it if I never have to put my own pair of pants on ever again. It's also worth it if the robot doesn't rip your thumb off yeah. when it's trying to put your shirt <laughs> yeah. on. All right, Sam, what you got for us? All right. So one big hurdle encountered when making robots that are intended to interact with and like walk around in their environments is maneuverability. So when people and animals move around, they're balancing, they're like pathfinding, they're adjusting to changes in incline and they're like jumping around and they're even transitioning from like water to land to sea. And not to mention that robots run on batteries and they can't just stop and eat like a bug or a bunch of grass when they need to keep going. <laughs> not yet, at least. And there have been a lot of advances in robo-mobility, but 
they can't really compare to good old-fashioned flesh and bone. So researchers at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology took a kind of weird and freaky shortcut. They developed what they call a parasitic robot system that commandeers mm. an organic being and pretty much mm. uses them as like a horse. Um, mm. <laughs> so their first and I think the only test subject that they've done so far were a bunch of turtles, red-eared slider turtles. Uh, they were chosen not only because they're amphibious, so there would be lots of options for the different kind of terrain they could do, but they have good memories, and they come with a big old shell that you can glue a bunch of electronic components to. Uh, so the robot <laughs> is basically like a little microchip brain hooked up to a battery, and then a bank of five red LED lights that are mounted horizontally in front of the turtle's face, and then a, like a little container of food that's like a gel and a spray nozzle that they positioned near the turtle's mouth. So for two weeks before they started this experiment, the turtles were fed while they were looking at a red LED light, mm. and then, then they put the robot on them, um, and the robot had instructions <laughs> to move the turtles along certain paths. <laughs> so to do this, it would light up one of the r five red lights in the direction closest to the way they wanted the turtle to go, and if the turtle went the way that they wanted it to the turtle would get a little gel treat from the robot's food tanks. So after five weeks of doing this, the robots were guiding the turtles through 16 feet of track in 75 seconds with a deviation from the ideal path of less than 3%. So one of the wow. big challenges that the researchers faced was that the turtles would sometimes get distracted by stuff that wasn't <laughs> the red lights in front of them. So future experiments <laughs> they are planning will use full virtual reality turtle headsets oh. um, to ensure that the parasitic robots have complete and total control of the turtles. Oh my god. <laughs> This is way less bad than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it's still scary, like, though. I thought that, yeah, I thought we were going to, like, be drilling holes in these poor boys' heads. But, I, no, I don't uh, think any, I think they just glued the things onto their shell. I don't think any holes were drilled anywhere in the turtles. Yeah. I'm very <laughs> impressed that turtles are this trainable. I had never really thought about trying to train a turtle. Yeah. I sense that I am in trouble. Do you guys want to choose between the two facts? We have 10,000 uh, simulations, some of which were violently incorrect, leading to a, <laughs> a robot that can put a sleeve onto a person in 10 seconds. Or Sam's amazing parasitic robot turtle. Three, two, one. Sam. Sam. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey. <laughs> I think only because the dressing robot only got one arm. If it had gotten the other yeah. arm... I would have been mm -hmm. like, yes, but they had complete control <laughs> over these turtles. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> they did. Unless the turtle got Unless distracted. distracted. <laughs> yeah. Hank, you did too good at science journalism where you were like, okay, I'm going to lower your expectations. One arm instead of starting with a fully automated closet that dresses you is on the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that means it's time for Ask the Science Couch, where we have some listener questions for our couch of finally honed scientific minds. At Treehouse Down asks, why is robotic skin so hard to make? Well, it depends on what you mean. So, like, just covering something in plastic is not hard. But if you want it to sense, that is very hard, it turns out. So there are, like, a number of reasons why. One, because, like, we sense many different things. And two, because, like, the nerve density of our ability to sense and, and, then, and then to send that information 
uh, for each little bit of skin. Like it's it's amazing that we can do this. But if you're trying to do it with a robot, you have to have each like tiny bit of resolution of skin feeling resolution to like have a separate wire that connects to a freaking central processing unit. And that is just it's it's miserably difficult. So, is, yeah, that's one of my <clears throat> understandings, at least of this. Who is making robot skin and why are they making robot skin? Do you really have to ask? <laughs> Not just sex. Uh, if you want uh, okay. any robot to be able to, so like take the the arm robot that has to touch mm-hmm. someone's arm and be like, oh, I'm going to put a sleeve on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs like touch receptors to know how much force it's putting on that arm. It needs probably like temperature sensors to be like, is this a living human or a dead corpse? I don't know. It's <laughs> like kind of a bad example, but that's important. Skin. That's important. You want it to understand the world around itself. So if it runs into something, you want it to know that that happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times right now, it just literally can't know. And if it does know, it knows that something happened, but it doesn't have any idea what it okay. ran into or right. in what direction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the way that we have like spatial orientation, we know how our body is arranged relative to itself. So we like know our arm is to the right or to the left of our body, for example. That's all nerve endings. It's called proprioception and it's in our muscles and our skin. And so like in order to have especially humanoid robots, but any robot that's doing a delicate task, you need some equivalent of skin with all these sensations to do the delicate actions. But as far as answering the question, Hank is right. It's mostly just because our skin is so dang complicated. Um, In addition to all the wiring stuff, our skin can get damaged and still function. And that's a hard part of um, approximating uh, skin. So even if we have a cut in our skin, that doesn't mean all the nerve endings are suddenly destroyed. But if you have a cut in robotic skin, that slashes through a sensor that could mess up the whole system. Right. And so a lot of innovations in... um, robotic skin technology are electrical engineering related and have to do with programming the electronics and the signals so that the like the processor that is receiving all of them doesn't get overloaded with mm. information. There are a couple different ways that people are experimenting with it. One is called asynchronously coded electronic skin or ACEs, which I think it's similar to this other one. The way it sends signals is not all at the same time. It spaces them out in such a way that there isn't like a big backlog of signals like waiting to be processed. And then another one, it's like above a certain threshold of activity. So like if you put a hat on your head, your head senses it. It's like, oh, that's weird. There's a hat on my head. Um, Mm -hmm. But after a little bit of time, your head just becomes used to it unless something else changes, like you take it off. Um, And so they're trying to program a robotic skin to mimic that. So like it recognizes the change in temperature or pressure and then recognizes it for a time. But then when it becomes part of the robot's state of being, you ignore it so that you can focus your processing energy on other things. Hmm. We kind of do that too. We're like, you start to tune things out after the signal has been there for a while. Yeah. 
It's like how you don't know where your tongue is until I said that. And now you're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I always know where my tongue is. Sam's constantly thinking about his tongue. <laughs> if you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at Camillavish13 and at Little Chris and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this episode. Sam Buck, final mm. scores. Sari, you and I are tied for last with one point. <laughs> Sam and Stefan are tied for first with Ooh. two. <laughs> so for the season, that brings us to Sari in the lead with 37 points, followed by 36 Stefan, 35 Sam, and 34 Tight. Hank. Oh, no. It's neck and neck. Tightly packed. <laughs> if you like this show and you want to help us out, it's real easy to do that. First, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That's helpful and helps us know what you like about the show. Second, you can tweet out your favorite moment from the episode or just say nice stuff to us on Twitter. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just Tell, Tell people, people about, about us. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the wonderful team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who is also our editor. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sound design is by Joseph Tuna Medish. Our beautiful logo is by Hiroko Matsushima. And we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled but a fire to be lighted. But one more thing. If you were a medical student in the UK in 2016 and you needed to practice performing rectal exams, your pickings were pretty slim. In fact, there was only one person in the whole country signed up to allow med students to perform practice exams on them, which seems like kind of a problem. <laughs> so, I mean, it seems like it would either be zero or more than one. <laughs> No, just just one. So a team at Imperial College London got to work inventing a robot ass. The result was what looked like a disembodied butt filled with little pistons and robot arms surrounding a silicon tube that was like a rectum. And they could the pistons and arms would squeeze to provide different amounts of pressure to simulate rectums of all different shapes and sizes. And oh it can God. also simulate different diseases and complications of the prostate. So... You just have a robot butt you can dig around in now. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>